Well, I get to welcome you again. Uh, Pastor Kevin did such a great job of welcoming you. I want to welcome you again, uh, whether you're at our PVC campus, the Indiana campus, Catanning campus, or Allegheny North campus, or maybe you are tuning in online. Thanks for joining us uh, wherever you're at. Uh, Kevin did mention earlier that I was going to communicate another announcement. Um, maybe you're with us uh, at any one of those campuses. Maybe you're with us online. But if you want to join us on Sunday evening, uh, we are going to be starting this coming Sunday night at 7 o'clock. We are going to have some uh, chairs set up in the foyer of the church, uh, social distanced. Uh, I'm going to be wearing a red sticker. I'm wearing a yellow sticker now. I'm wearing a red sticker on Sunday night. Uh, I will also be wearing a mask and trying to figure out from now until then how to preach with a mask on. But if you want to come Sunday evening, it will be completely social distanced and everybody will be masked up. So I want to encourage you to join us 7 o'clock Sunday evening right here at the Catanian campus. No other facilities will be having a Sunday evening service, just the Catanian campus. I'm excited. Um, Perhaps uh, many of you will join us Uh, There has been interest, and so if you expressed interest, I personally expect to see you out there, so I'm not there by myself. Well, without further ado, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I have a question for you. Uh, I know when Nate Adams began the series on Romans 8, he kind of threw around uh, some of his pedigree when he talked a little bit about his engineering degree. But he alluded to what we call the laws of thermodynamics. And so my question to you is, do you know what the law of entropy is? I know, I know it's an exciting topic. You don't have to stand up and scream it to me right now. What is the law of entropy? It's the second law of thermodynamics that tells us that our universe is moving from order to disorder. From harmony to disharmony, everything in the universe left to itself will break down. These musical instruments that you see up here, uh, the, the worship team gathers earlier than the service to tune those instruments because if you leave those instruments by themselves for any period of time, they will come out of tune and you will not enjoy worship on a Sunday morning with the praise team because it will be, there won't be any harmony in it. We, ha- we have to constantly tune instruments. And those of you who play instruments, thank you very much for giving the attention to do that. Uh, if you wind your watch, uh, I, I hope some of you still wear watches. Maybe you wear a smartwatch. Well, if you wind your watch and you leave alone, what happens? It dies. If you forget to put your smartwatch on the charging dock, it dies. It stops working. Eventually, everything runs down. It's why I have to put Thompson water seal on my deck every single year. And I stress every single year. I have to get the pressure washer, pressure wash the deck, and get Thompson's water seal to preserve the deck a little bit longer than normal. Now, if I were to leave it alone, what would happen? It would fall apart. It would break down. It's why we have to cut our grass on a regular basis. We can't let our grass go, grow, go or it will turn into a jungle. Uh, and just as a side note, for those of you who have teens, it probably explains why your kid's room is in uh, whatever, whatever stage of disarray. But, but they'll say to you, but mom, I left it perfectly on Saturday afternoon. Why didn't it stay that way? Uh, let, me, let me just give you a little tip, and this is free. 
Uh, if you have teenagers and they struggle with cleaning their rooms, just shut the door. Seriously, just shut the door because one of these days they're going to be out of the house and you're going to be longing for that dirty, messy room again. I know. I've been there. I don't trip up the steps anymore because my kids are gone and I miss it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Why does this happen? And by the way, do you know that there's a theory going around in this world called the theory of evolution that actually goes counter the second law of thermodynamics. It says that things move from simple to more um, diverse and more complex things. But the second law of thermodynamics says things break down. We live in a world that is breaking down. The universe and everything in it is running down. Henry Nouwen says, it seems that there is no such thing as pure joy, but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of our limitations. In every success, there is the fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there's a tear. In every embrace, there's loneliness. In every friendship, distance. And in all forms of light, there is the knowledge of surrounding darkness. But this experience in which every bit of life is touched by a bit of death points us beyond the limits of our existence. It can, it can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one can take, take away from us. I don't mean to be a downer. There, there is light at the end of this tunnel, but life is hard, isn't it? Life, if you look at your life it, it, to a certain degree or another, it probably hasn't turned out the way you thought it would, did it? And you struggle every day. And, and we're in the middle of, of a culture right now that is just coming unhinged, and none of us knows where to turn when we watch the news. Who's telling me the truth today? Who's telling me the truth tomorrow? How am I going to respond to the stuff I hear on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and the news? The world is out of control and it's breaking down and running down. And I'm so grateful that we are in the greatest chapter in the Bible. Why? Because I think that we are scaling the heights of the gospel. Uh, what, what is it that brings hope and provides hope uh, to Christians in a world that's breaking down. It's the gospel. And, and Paul, the whole book of Romans, Paul spends a lot of time talking about justification. It's being declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And then he unfolds this whole doctrine of uh, sanctification where you are being made in reality to what God has already seen you and in as through the righteousness of Christ. And then, he, and then Scott talked about it last week, we're, we're adoption as sons and daughters. And these are all plateaus and little uh, places in this as we're scaling this, this huge, magnificent message called the gospel. By the way, how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Just, but just let me know. Who's been to the Grand Canyon? Just a few hands. I have never been to the Grand Canyon. It's on my bucket list. I want to go to the Grand Canyon. I've had friends who have gone to the Grand Canyon and they have, st they have stood on any one of those observation decks and, and they've come back and told me just how magnificent it is, how breathtaking it is. 
I don't necessarily understand the people that go down to the canyon floor. How can you see how immense it is when you're down in the canyon floor? You really can't, can you? It's, it's pretty amazing, I understand. But you can't get a real perspective on how immense and majestic it is. I had an opportunity to fly over the Grand Canyon two years ago. And I didn't realize, you know, in my mind, yeah, I've seen some pictures of the Grand Canyon. It's a large crack in the earth. But when you're 28,000 feet above the Grand Canyon, this thing is humongous. It is, it is gigantic, and it's, it, you can't even take it all in out one window of the airplane. It's just huge. And so I think about that in relation to the fact that we live in this world that's running down. What is going to help us see past that? I think it's a clear perspective of the gospel. It's a clear perspective of, of how much uh, Jesus gave so that his father could have a relationship with his creation. That, that provides hope for me. And what Paul is really going to focus on today is the hope of glory. You know, history is moving someplace. History is going in a direction. And, and the direction that it's going is all of life will one day be redeemed. All of life will one day be changed. All of life will one day be renewed. We will live on a, in the new heavens and a new earth with a glorified body. All of those great doctrines of the scriptures are stepping stones to that reality. Because once Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God began the process of making everything new and reversing the curse. And so that's what we're going to see a little bit. So follow along with me in Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want you to think of three words in, connections with this, in connection with this passage, and they're really in the first verse. I'm going to take them out of the order that they come in, but I think there's a progression in these words. Suffering, longing, glory. We deal with suffering right now. And it's creating a longing in us. And one of these days that longing is going to be satisfied with glory. And you know the suffering that Paul ended with in verse 17 is the kind of suffering that we normally think of. When we think of suffering, we think of difficulties in life. And I know many of you are dealing with difficulties in life. You're dealing with tragedies in life. You're dealing with illness. You're dealing with crippled crippling disease. And oftentimes when we think of suffering, those are the things we focus on, don't we? But I'm going to suggest that that's the valley floor of life in this world. That's not 
the 28,000 foot view. These are implicit in what Paul is saying in these verses, but Paul is thinking about a suffering that is much more cosmic, which he refers to later as the bondage to corruption, to which the whole creation is subject. And why is the whole creation subject? Well, Paul says because of him who subjected it in hope. God subjected it. Why did God subject this world to this kind of suffering? Because there's redemption awaiting this world. And just like he had to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden to keep them from staying in that state of sin and decay, he had to subject this world to the suffering so he could reserve new life for it through the sons and daughters of God. But we find this in verse, uh, in chapter 3 of Genesis, and God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You know, sometimes I wonder if, if I were Adam, if I would have understood the ramifications of the command that he gave me. Remember the command, don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because once you do, you'll die. And obviously, the fruit was pretty tempting because certainly Eve had to weigh that command, or at least how the command was communicated to her by Adam. But she must have thought that the consequences outweighed the benefits. But I wonder, did Adam and Eve ever contemplate that it would throw the entire universe into chaos? Did that ever cross their mind? And I got to tell you, being in their shoes and dealing with temptations, I don't think about the the far-off consequences of my choices sometimes. Do we? None of us do. We, we like to be gratified. Sin gratifies for a season, doesn't it? And we don't think about the consequences. If you have your maps, your first point in your maps is, is this next phrase. The whole created universe is suffering because of man's first disobedience. What is the nature of this suffering? It's emptiness. It's futility, it's frustration. I think we see this writ large on our television screens uh, today, profoundly demonstrated in this modern, sophisticated, woke, progressive 21st century with its vast sums of knowledge and experience and a never-ending list of problems without solutions. Our libraries and our bookstores and our news feeds are filled with volumes written and posted by experts on a myriad of subjects from marriage to mental health to car repair to all sorts of topics and subjects. You know, there's nothing you can't do by going, by, 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 there's nothing you can't do. You can do anything you want to do by going to YouTube and checking out any video. It will teach you how to do almost anything. But with all of this information out there, marriage clinics and counselors abound and divorce increases. We live in an age of psychology and psychiatry and psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and psychosomatics, yet our mental hospitals are bursting with patients. 
There's never enough room for those needing care. And mental illness is claiming more and more victims while millions of dollars are being poured into tranquilizing stimulants every year. Huge advances have been made in child psychology and understanding. Social workers specializing in juvenile problems, juvenile courts, and agencies dedicated to youth while every major city has its share of guidance counselors. And in spite of this, adolescent suicide continues to rise. Humanity is boiling. Just turn your television on. Humanity is boiling with the desire for personal dignity and equality and freedom and independence. Yet more than one-third, more than one-third of the world's population struggles under government tyranny. With all the discussion and negotiation about one world and a an united mankind, I, I don't think I've seen this world more disunited. And how smart are we anyways? I think we take a lot of pride in our intelligence, don't we? But let me, let me ask you this question. We take one step forward and two steps back. Would you call that progress? We do. Americans do. The more we know, the less capable we seem to be in managing our problems. This is the futility to which Paul is refer- referring. It's a universal frustration. It reminds me of the words of the wisest man in the Bible. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. Consider the limitations that time and space impose upon us. Consider the limitations of age. No one has conquered the great level of humanity. People are trying. People are trying to defeat death. In fact, many years ago, there was a suggestion floating around that if we, cure, if we found a cure for all our diseases, we could free... Oh, if, if we're working on finding a cure for all our diseases and someone has a certain disease, we can freeze that person until they figure out how to cure their disease. And then unfreeze them, and then perhaps they'll live forever. Answers have still yet to be found. The lack of peace in the world, the lack of freedom, slavery, bondage, never-ending helplessness of mankind to recreate this world to fit our dreams and desires. This is the universal suffering of which all of our suffering are symptoms of. From this bondage, Paul declares, is what the world, the whole created universe is longing to be delivered. We long for something better, don't we? I hope you do. I hope you long for something better. Nothing satisfies this side of, of the grave because we were made for eternity. Nothing satisfies completely in this life because we have an unquenchable appetite. Nothing satisfies because we were, we were to be completely satisfied on God. But we gave up on him and tried it running after lesser satisfactions. The whole universe waits like a woman in childbirth. I, I don't get that image, by the way. I, I've never been a woman in childbirth. But I've had a daughter who's had a, had a baby. And, and she said it was pretty painful. I can only imagine. I said, well, what helped you push through the pain? She said, the reality of holding my son. 
And see, a lot of times I think we focus on the negative, don't we? We focus on the pain of childbirth. And, and trust me, I know some women who have dealt with some pretty horrific labor pains and have decided, I'm done with that one. <laughs> no more for me. I'm not going to have any more kids. But I know for my wife, she said, yes, it was painful. And, and, I, and she couldn't even begin to explain it to me. But, but the joy that, that was set before her in holding that child once it was born, it wiped away all that pain. And, and that's what we're waiting for. We, we are struggling, we are laboring in this world that is breaking down and falling apart because I, I hope and pray that you have hope, that you have the hope of glory, that you see that there's something new on the horizon for those of us who name the name of Jesus. And that's what Paul is trying to hammer home. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Nature every year makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year. But unfortunately, it doesn't succeed. For spring leads only to summer. Summer leads to autumn and autumn back to winter. Poor old nature, he says, tries every year to defeat the autumn and autumn back, I'm sorry, poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity. The principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it, but it can't do it. It fails every time. Paul says that not only does the whole created universe long to be delivered from this bondage to corruption and decay, but so do we. But so do we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. You ever wonder what that phrase means? First fruits of the Spirit means that it's the Spirit that is guaranteeing that God is going to work in us everything that he has promised he would do. He's going to bring about restoration. He's going to bring about all things new. He is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to bring a glorified, renewed body. There will be no pain. There will be no crying. There will be no suffering. And how do we know that? The Holy Spirit lives and resides in all of us. The Holy Spirit is the deposit that God is going to be faithful to that promise to make all things new. Which leads me to your second point on the map. Having been born of God because Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts and having a hint of that which is eternal, we long for it. So we have suffering and now we've got longing. Or at least we ought to long for it. I suppose that this is one of the major tragedies in the church today. We have settled for lesser pleasures. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We don't really long as we ought, ought for the return of Christ. We don't long for the redemption of our bodies. We don't long for the glory that is to be revealed in us. Most of us live as though what we get and what we do and what we enjoy before we go to the grave is the most important thing. What's the difference between this view and all of the world views in life? 
Get while the getting's good. It's the same as it's the same as an unbeliever would say. Strive for what you can get today, because tomorrow you might die. Eat, drink, and be merry. The details of the details of our perspective might be very different, but the goals are identical. And and we as Christians operate in that basis. One school of Greek philosophy taught that the body was evil and that the best thing was to get out of it, to escape into whatever glory awaited the human spirit for the body was a prison holding us in. And I think this philosophy has crept in to the church. Some Christians have an ejection seat mentality. And I think, honestly, Pastor Mike really talked about it several weeks back when he was talking about the rapture I think that we've even created a theological perspective on this ejection seat mentality. We actually believe that as things get worse and worse and worse before Jesus returns, we can just hit the rapture button and we'll escape it. See, I I, I don't think that philosophy is biblical. We don't have an ejection cord to zip us off into glory when things get difficult. I wish that were true. I wish I could avoid some of the pain and the struggle and the suffering that I've had to deal with. But I can't. And none of us can. We're all tempted to feel that way. See, the biblical viewpoint is that though the body is in pain and suffering and is limited now, this is an important aspect of our eternity. It is something that is part of the plan of God, part of the privilege committed to us as Christians. Well, some of you may be thinking, well, if you had told me that before I signed up to be a Christian, I probably wouldn't have signed up. Well, Jesus already told you. Didn't Jesus look at his disciples one day and said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He, he didn't keep that secret from us. He didn't say that following him would be a bed of roses. Now certainly there is, a, there is a modern perspective on that called the health and wealth gospel that wants to say, hey, everything's going to be okay. And if everything's not okay, you must be in some kind of a sin, brother or sister. You haven't named it and claimed it enough. Not in the Bible. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I I don't have a slide for this, but follow along as I read. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, what is happening to us now is something that we never need to see as meaningless. The struggle, the strife, the difficulties, the challenges, the suffering, none of it's meaningless. It has a purpose. Our suffering is not wasted. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 Paul says, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away. And can I get a witness? Though our outer selves are wasting away. I'm going to say it. Amen to myself. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. How many of you look at your difficulties and your struggles right now and can say with the Apostle Paul, this is light and momentary. This is light and momentary. But I know some of you don't feel that way. Some of you feel overwhelmed right now with the suffering you're dealing with and the pain you're experiencing. But Paul is saying to you, this is light and momentary affliction. This is such a short period of time that you're dealing with this light and momentary affliction because you have all of eternity in front of you. Let me finish what he says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That's the smoke. The world we live in is the smoke and the mirrors. That's not the reality. That's the shadow of the things to come. But the things that are unseen are eternal. But because we have lost this hope-filled vision, because we do not yearn for this moment for which the whole created universe longs, what are we left with? You know what we're left with? We become victims of our circumstances. We become victims of, of our day in and day out. We become victims of our pain. When you get right down to it, Life is meaningless apart from that which lies on the other side of the grave. Why do I say that? Because it is so much longer than this time we have on this earth. Now there are two destinations beyond the grave. They're both eternal. One will be Groundhog Day and suffering all the time. You'll be watching that movie over and over and over again without Christ. The other destination is the joy that we're waiting for. It's the hope that we need. It's the renewal that all of history is pointing to. It's the new body. It's the new heavens. It's the new earth. It is living and residing with God in glory. It is his presence forevermore. All human beings have eternity written in their hearts. We long for it. We must. It's part of the image. It's part of what we bear as image bearers of God. See, immortality is more than a discovery or an invention or a good thing we have added to make the world a better place in which to live. Immortality is infinitely more than this. The Apostle Paul insists that immortality is to live forever in a body that is incorruptible, immortal, and undefiled. He says so in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. That's my experience. I know it's your experience. In this tent we groan. 
longing to, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal, listen to this, may be swallowed up by life. Do you think you really are alive today? The life that you experience today is nothing compared to the life you'll experience in eternity. No matter how good it is, it's nothing. Because this mortal life is going to be swallowed up in what is real life forever and ever. And then he finishes with this phrase, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God, and and essentially Paul is saying the very same thing that he did in Romans 8, where he says the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is the guarantee that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, and he's going to move us and take us where he said he's going to take us, and he's going to recreate us like he said he was going to recreate us and renew us. See, God has built this longing into us, and sin has frustrated it. So the whole creation groans for that moment when the Son of God returns. When the sons of God are revealed for what they are, when our bodies are raised from the grave, when the lion lays down with the lamb, when the knowledge of God covers the earth like the sea. This is our ultimate hope. And when that moment comes, the whole created universe shares in that freedom. We're not leaving it behind. God has a plan for this world he created. Well, some of you might be thinking, but I can't see this future glory. No kidding. His reply is, if Paul were standing here, yes, that's the very nature of hope. If you can see it, then it's not hope. Which leads me to my third point in your map. Our salvation includes hope because we don't receive it all in this life. We don't receive it all in this life. The hope of our salvation is not uncertain as when we say, I hope it doesn't rain on my picnic tomorrow. Rather, it's absolutely certain because of the many promises of God who cannot lie. But we hope for it because we have not yet received all that has been promised. So Paul concludes with verse 25. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The key to perseverance and suffering with hope is to keep our eyes on the promised future glory. I've been been saying it for several weeks now. I know it was a phrase that was coined by harvest, by missionaries, by harvest folks that have gone on the mission field over the years when they encountered circumstances and situations that were not ideal. They were encouraged with the words, it's just the way I like it. I've started to apply that to almost every circumstance in my life. I apply it to hearing bad news on on television. I apply it to seeing bad news uh, in and around me. It's just the way I like it. I, I apply it when I hear that there are more cases, although I'm not worried about cases of COVID. I'm, worried, I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about the death and the hospitalizations. People are going to get sick. That's just the way viruses are. People get sick. It's just the way I like it, though. It's just the way we like it. 
Paul says that though we ourselves are redeemed in spirit, our bodies are not yet redeemed. It's just the way I like it. We too are groaning. All through this paragraph, there's a constant contrast between groaning and glory. Yet the two are linked. Nature groans. We groan, yet the groaning is producing the glory. Do you see it? Our groaning is producing the glory. I want to remind you again of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction, look at this, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Have you ever thought of your suffering in that way? That our suffering is actually working for us, not against us. Our struggles are actually working for us and not against us. Our difficulties are actually working for us and not against us. Every time we groan, it's a reminder to us of the promise promise of glory. I do not think anything, at least for me, you're going to have to answer this question for yourself. I don't think anything will transform my suffering more than remembering that. That my suffering is producing a capacity for glory. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying that our lives as Christians are characterized only by suffering and groaning. We have peace with God. We have joy in the midst of sorrow. We have the benefit of many blessings which come from the hand of a gracious and loving Father now in this life and yet in, and in the one to come. But when all is said and done, God does not intend for us to be content with what we are. Suffering is a prerequisite for glory. We must place our hope in things to come, those things which God has promised, because this hope is not presently seen. We must fix our hope by means of faith and not sight. God intends for those things we see as wrong within us and in the world in which we live to create in us a hunger for heaven. How many of you are hungry? How many of you recognize you're not hungry enough? You become all too easily, you become too, too much at ease in this world that you live in. You become too comfortable in the world you live in. You enjoy the things of this world just a little bit too much. So let me wrap this up with some practical steps. And I I hope that I'm speaking to a few groups of people directly. If you are in a season of suffering and you see no good coming from it, can I urge you, as the Apostle Paul says, to be patient? and suspend judgment. See, because a lot of times when we're not patient, we start pointing the finger at God. Saying, God, you didn't tell me this was going to happen. You aren't coming to my rescue. You aren't fixing it, God. There must be something wrong with your character. Wrestle through it patiently, knowing that you don't see the big picture. You're still in the valley floor, friends. You're not up at 28,000 feet looking at the big picture. You don't see what God is doing in that struggle, in that light momentary affliction. So hang in there. What God is doing 
may be revealed only in eternity, and we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay that that unanswered question, that unanswered suffering is preparing us for the weight of glory that is not for here, but for eternity. For now, what may be the only assurance that you and I have, that you and I can hold on to, if you're in this season of, is, of suffering, is, is holding on to God. Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Pardon for sin and and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. If you are walking with someone going through suffering today, I want you to take a clue from the Spirit in verse 26 who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Don't, don't, don't be pressured to speak to people that are suffering right off the bat. Just sit with them. Just pray with them. Just dwell with them. Allow the Spirit to, to, to minister to them through your presence. And as you're praying for them, I, I want to encourage you and caution you to be careful how you pray. Because if God graciously sends suffering and groaning into our lives to perfect us for heaven, why in our prayers do we ask God to remove our suffering and pain? They might be the very messengers that God is sending to us to get our attention onto him. You need to pray with this person for strength and endurance. Pray for hope to be set on heaven. Pray Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Don't try to explain it and fix and, or fix it. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? To try to fix it. Just weep with them. Just sit and weep with them. If you are an unbeliever today, some of you may be tempted to sit here and say, wow, I really like this hope-filled thinking. What a peaceful, comfortable way to live. These things are only true because of who Jesus is. And they're only true for Christians because we have, we have given ourselves to him. If you don't belong to Christ, none of these promises are true for you. They can't be. But you have to receive him. And you can receive him. Don't leave today without receiving Jesus. Because then these things will be true of you today. C.S. Lewis said, and I paraphrase, don't come to Christianity because it's comforting. Don't come to Christianity because it's encouraging. Don't come to Christianity because it's relevant. Don't come to Christianity because it's exciting. Come to Christianity because it's true. But know this. The hopelessness of our suffering without Christ is something that should make us all seriously consider his claims. The suffering of an eternity without Christ ought to seriously cause us to think about what Jesus said and who he was. Only Jesus says, I am the way, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Only he has overcome the grave. Only he can make all things new. Amen? Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.